So we get asked a lot about murder cases we're giving talks. We do. But we don't really talk about them a lot. We do not. And I suppose there's, there's a few reasons for that. I mean, it can it can seem a bit sensationalist to focus on those stories. Yeah, absolutely. And and they don't really tell us the story of Bad Bridget. They're very often the, the unusual case, um, the, the one that's kind of standalone. And, and if we focus only on those cases, they could actually give us a completely distorted view of what the typical crimes were. Exactly. But here we are. This is the Bad Bridget podcast with Elaine Farrell and Leanne McCormack. The podcast that goes behind the traditional emigrant success story to tell the hidden tales of women that history has chosen to forget. It shines a light on stories of crime and poverty, but also of survival, resistance and coping against the odds. These are the stories that help us understand the complex experience of migration, both in the past and today. So yeah, most of our women were imprisoned for drunkenness or petty theft, rather than for killing several of their husbands and her neighbours like Lizzie Halliday. Who has her own Wikipedia page. And Grace Marks, another of our very famous bad Bridgets, this time who was found guilty of the murder of her employer and his housekeeper. And she's the focus of the Margaret Atwood's book, uh, Alias Grace. She might be very familiar to some listeners and also from the Netflix uh, series as well. But this is our last podcast. We've set the Bad Bridget scene in the previous four episodes and now we're focusing on these more unusual cases today. So let's have our amazing Siobhan McSweeney introduce us to one of them. On Thursday, the 23rd of April, 1908, Patrick Brennan returned home from work in upstate New York. He found he couldn't get into his house because the key that was usually outside the door was missing. He knocked, but his wife, Sarah, did not answer the door. She should have been long home from a dentist appointment in Watertown that morning. Patrick eventually got a ladder by breaking the door of his barn and used the ladder to climb into the house through a first floor window. He still could not see any sign of Sarah. The following day, Sarah still hadn't returned home. Bizarrely, Patrick was then served with papers to evict him from the house which Sarah had owned and where they had lived for the past 20 years. Confused about what was going on, he went to report Sarah's disappearance to the district attorney's office and engage a detective to look for her. Next door to the Brennans lived James Farmer, his wife Mary and their seven-month-old son. Sarah and Mary were thought to be close friends, although the farmers were significantly less well-off. Mary was Irish-born. She had moved to the US in 1900, where she initially worked as a servant, including at the Binghamton City Hospital, before moving to Buffalo. The couple had married in 1904. Suspicion almost immediately rested on Sarah Brennan's neighbours, Mary and James Farmer. The last sighting of Sarah was when she was seen going into Mary's house at around half nine on the morning she disappeared. 
Earlier that morning, Mary had left her seven-month-old son with another neighbour, explaining that she was going into Watertown, but after Sarah's disappearance, Mary claimed Sarah had gone into Watertown alone. And it was Mary and James's names that were now on the deeds of the Brennan's house, and who had made clear to Patrick Brennan that they intended to move into the house he had shared with his wife. Okay, so this man comes home after a day's work to find the locks changed, his wife missing, and his neighbours now apparently own his house. And it gets worse, as Siobhan is going to tell us. On Saturday, two days after Sarah was last seen alive, neighbours, encouraged by the promises of alcohol, helped the farmers to move next door into the Brennan's house. The farmers did not have much because they were not well off, but they had a large black trunk that Mary said contained fragile items. She had a couple of men tie it with a clothesline. She followed them as they carried it the 80 feet from one house to the other and directed where it should be placed in the new house. Mary was evidently religious and had a priest come to bless her new home. On Monday, four days since Sarah had last been seen alive, the local sheriff decided to search the house where the farmers were now living. Attention soon focused on the trunk that the farmers had moved into the house. Both Mary and James denied owning it and neither offered a key to open its lock. When the police broke open the lock, untied the rope, and opened the trunk. They were faced with the horror of finding the body of missing Sarah inside it. So the couple were arrested on a charge of murder, but they're tried separately. And at the trial, Mary tries to pin the murder on her husband, saying that he had killed Sarah because he was angry that Mary had left their son at a neighbour's house while she accompanied Sarah into town. But in another version of events, Mary claimed that 48-year-old Sarah had arrived at her house that morning and had pleaded with her to kill her because she was feeling sick, saying, and I quote, she would give anything if she would take that old axe that laid there and knock her brains out. And so Mary said, well, she obliged. Sarah had asked her. And so she hit Sarah from behind. And her defence also tried to claim that she was insane, but this wasn't accepted. It wasn't, and Mary was actually sentenced to be executed at Auburn Prison, New York. Now, James, was, her husband, was also found guilty of murder, and he is also sentenced to be executed. Mary appealed for mercy, so she, she appealed that this sentence of execution would not be carried into effect. But this appeal was denied, um, and she was 29 years of age. And it emerged at the trial that in October, six months before the murder, Mary had gone to a lawyer's office pretending to be Sarah. And she'd brought with her the deeds to Sarah's house, which somehow she had stolen from a tin box that Sarah kept in her bedroom. And she then had the house transferred to her husband, James, and then a few months later to their baby son, Peter. So really, we can see here this this murder seems to be intentional. It's been planned for months. Yes. And before her execution, Mary Farmer took the prison chaplain, Father John Hickey's advice, and she made a statement exonerating her husband from any involvement in the murder. So let me read this statement for you. My husband, James D. Farmer, never had any hand in Sarah Brennan's death, nor never knew anything about it till the trunk was opened. I never told him anything what had happened. 
I feel he has been terribly wronged. James D. Farmer was not at home the day the affair happened. Neither did James D. Farmer ever put a hand on Sarah Brennan after her death. Again, I wish to say as strongly as I can that my husband, James D. Farmer, is entirely innocent of the death of Sarah Brennan, that he knowingly had no part in any plans that led to it, and that he knew nothing whatever about it. So it really emphasises her innocence. But actually, it's not all that clear if Mary is telling the truth in that statement. Because James Farmer's sister, who had seen the deeds before Sarah's disappearance, actually suspected that Mary had impersonated Sarah Brennan. And she warned her brother James at least three times to go and ask Sarah directly if the deeds were right. But James ignored that advice. And on top of that, he and his wife Mary went to a different attorney to put the deeds in their son Peter's name. Yeah, and of course, James would also have known that they were they were poor, that his wife was probably not able to afford the, what, $2,100 that she claimed to have paid Sarah for the property. It was it's all very suspicious. And, and Mary was executed by electric chair in 1909, the first woman executed at Auburn Prison, and the second woman executed by electric chair in New York, and the seventh woman executed in the state. Father Hickey, the the chaplain, who thought she would be shown clemency on the grounds of mental ill health, said that she would die a good Catholic and go to her death bravely. And Mary is alleged herself to have said, I will die like a queen going to a higher court. Now, Mary didn't know at the time, but actually James Farmer would not have his sentence of executed carried into effect um, as a result of, of that statement that she made. And um, so the Court of Appeals found him not guilty the following year and he's released um, from Auburn prison. And this is quite an unusual story. Um, Mary Farmer is one of our very few bad Bridgets who is executed for her crimes. Yeah. Um, it's clearly planned with the intention of getting on the property ladder. Uh, I'm not really sure how Mary thought she would get away with this. What did she intend to do with Sarah's body? Did she think Patrick would just stop looking for her? Yeah, and, and this kind of this planning months in advance, it's very Machiavellian, isn't it? Um, you know, there's, there's like a clear motive here, this money, this acquiring property at any cost. Yeah, so Jay Height, who reviewed the initial verdict in James Farmer's case, clearly saw Mary as the mastermind behind it all. And here's what he said. That she was the ruling power and to a large extent controlled him in his actions is quite apparent. It was her mind that planned the scheme for getting title to the house and lot owned by Mrs. Brennan. She took the deed to a lawyer who was not acquainted with her and procured him to draw a deed to the defendant, herself impersonating Mrs. Brennan and signing and acknowledging the same. It was her mind that devised the bill of sale of the personal property, the household furniture, goods, and provisions. It was she who procured the confidence of Mrs. Brennan, who had become her daily visitor and confidant, thus enabling her to have access to Mrs. Brennan's house and papers. It was her hand that struck the blows that destroyed the life of her friend. And it was her mind that evidently planned the homicide to the end that she, her husband, and son could possess the property which she so much coveted. 
So this is different from many of the other violent crimes that we see in the records. They're often carried out in anger or very often we see alcohol being involved as well. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or crimes of passion, like Letitia Armstrong, who so shot the servant she found in bed with her husband in Toronto in 1873. Yeah, but that one did have a bit of planning, mm -hmm. um, I think, involved as well. Like she obviously had some suspicion about a relationship between her husband and her servant. She pretended to go out for the night, got herself all dolled up and then, you know, came back unannounced and found them in bed together. Uh, she had the gun ready and she shot Julia, the servant, in the face and Julia actually lost an eye. And her legal team said it would have been a more righteous act if she had shot her husband, who appeared to be a man without regard either for his wife or the decency of society. Yeah, but, you know, Letitia clearly believed that Julia, in her words, enticed her husband into bed yeah. and that she was the one to blame and, and she targeted the husband. I mean, she targeted the servant, rather. She didn't target her husband at all. Yeah, and the case generated a lot of interest and, and I suppose you can see why. Yeah, this is a, clearly a couple with some income who could yep. afford a servant and it's the sort of scandal that people were and I suppose still are yeah. interested in today. And and I suppose the, the jury at the trial clearly feels some sympathy uh, for Letitia. She she must have presented very convincingly as that kind of wronged wife. Um, they found her guilty of shooting with intent to injure, but they also strongly recommended um, that she be treated with mercy. Yeah, and the judge called her conduct, though, brutal and unwomanlike oh, wow. in a high degree, but she still only got a, a one-year sentence. And like that idea of being unwomanlike, I mean, that's something we see a lot in these murder cases. Um, when women commit murder or when they're involved in some kind of violence, this idea that that this violence goes completely against all that being a woman meant, that, that women were this kind of expectation that women were gentle and subservient and caring and, and nurturing, kind of the, the opposite of these the murders. Yeah. And, and then it sort of is also presented that sometimes that's, it's worse than men committing the same crimes, that women are supposed to be all these things. And when they're not, that's, that's, that's far worse because men are expected or understood to be aggressive and to try and solve things through violence. Yeah. It's, it's just this kind of clash of expectations. This is really kind of gendered um, idea. And we see this in the way that women and their appearance and their behavior are described, um, particularly in newspapers, I think. And um, we can see these, these kind of gender differences really, um, coming out. Yeah, and the, the Lizzie Halliday case actually is a really good example of the way reporters often present women as evil to explain their, their crimes. And we spoke to Dr. Leanne Calvert about this. Leanne was the research assistant on the Bad the Bridget brilliant, Project. The absolutely brilliant research assistant. She was before she left us and moved <laughs> to a lecturing post at the University of, of Hertfordshire. And we wanted to really talk about the way in which the, the language that's used in newspapers, the portrayals of Lizzie and the descriptions that she's even described as, as the worst woman in the world, that they're, they're quite extreme in focusing on the way she looked and also the fact that, that she was a woman. As well as being known as the worst woman in the world, Lizzie Halliday also courted a reputation for being wild and animal-like in her appearance, her manners and her behaviour. Splashed across the headlines and bylines of newspaper articles were phrases such as maniac, the woman monster, the woman slayer, the weird woman and the wolf woman. While these phrases were deliberately chosen to sensationalise the case and grab the attention of the general public, they were also highly gendered images, 
that served the purpose of depicting Pussy as unwomanly and unfeminine. The crimes that she committed not only went against the conventions of civilized society, they reeled against ideas about women's natural characters. Lots of the newspaper reports carried images of Pussy with frazzled hair, looking wild and thin. Her wild behaviour and unkempt appearance was a source of constant comment in the newspapers. The Evening World, for example, chose to comment on Pussy's brown thatched head, her unhealthy pallor and her simple, plain gown that was made of brown stuff. And this was contrasted with the outfits of the fashionable and the feminine women who were in the gallery. Women who wore, quote, delicious summer gowns. The beauty and femininity of Lizzie's victims was emphasised in the papers to draw attention to the disparity between the murderer and the victim. Sarah McQuillan, for example, was described as a beautiful young girl, while Catherine Ward, an attendant who Lizzie attacked in the asylum, was described as a comely, intelligent young woman. The most striking descriptions of Lizzie, and also my favourite for the images they conjure in the mind, are those that describe her in animalistic terms. Many of the newspapers created an image of Lizzie as an animal, commenting on how her nose was shaped like a pig's snout, her eyes were small and beady, her manner was wild like a hawk, and how she possessed an unnatural amount of physical strength for her shape and size. So Lizzie was said to weigh about 110 pounds and stood at a mere five foot one. So the fact that she was able to possess such an amount of physical strength to be able not only to carry out these murders and violent attacks, but to be able to hide these bodies provided further evidence that she was unfeminine. She was not like any normal sort of woman. The most striking descriptions of Lizzie, however, and they're also my favourite ones, are those that describe her as a tigress. A number of the reports pick up on these themes. So the Evening World in June of 1894 described an assault that Lizzie perpetrated on her physician during the trial. And they told how she, quote, fought like a tigress, her hair over her face and filled her mouth as she snapped her teeth together. The animalistic depictions here of snapping teeth were inspired to shock and scare the reader. Indeed, I will leave you with the most ominous description of Lizzie. In the assault she carried out on Catherine Ward, a newspaper told how Lizzie's tigerish instinct came into play as she stalked her prey. The last thing that poor Catherine before her attack set eyes on were, quote, two wild bloodshot eyes glaring into hers and ten of Mrs. Halliday's fingers were fastened upon her throat. Thanks a million, Leanne. So, so it's real, these kind of real strong descriptions of, of women being violent. Um, and of course, this domestic violence is, of course, a, a reality in many of our stories. Um, and while we're talking today about women committing the crimes, you know, we do need to be very clear that that women are um, now, as well as then, they're more likely to be victims of violence and um, particularly violence um, in the home um, compared to men. Yeah, and we do have a number of examples where women were violent towards their husbands 
and they give a background of domestic abuse as the reason for committing the yeah. crimes. Yeah, like um, the Irish immigrant um, Bridget McCabe. Um, so she stabbed and killed her husband in New York um, in 1881. And, and she said that he had beaten her. He'd broken two of her ribs. Um, and I think the fact that she's only sentenced to two years for manslaughter, it might show us that her case was actually viewed sympathetically by the court and that and that, that, that story um, did have an impact. Yeah, absolutely. And and we also do come across so regularly cases where we see women involved in violence against other women. Yeah. Women mm-hmm. been brought in together, um, you know, been arrested together for assault. We have an example of, of Ellen Doyle from the, the notorious Five Points area of New York in 1851. And she had been fighting with another woman called Eliza Sullivan, who she shared a house with. And in the middle of this fight, Ellen lifted an iron pot and she threw it at Eliza. Unfortunately, it missed Eliza, but it hit another woman, Catherine Sullivan, on the head. And and quite horrifically, one of the legs of the pot, it's described, went about two inches into her forehead. Oh, God, that sounds absolutely horrific. But but it didn't actually kill Catherine immediately. She died a day later in hospital. So she went through all the the suffering um, and then died the following day. So uh, like this is kind of an accident. You know, Ellen hadn't meant to to harm Catherine. Um, But just before this had happened, Ellen had thrown a pot of scalding hot water over another woman. Um, So she clearly had this history of violence. Yeah, and she definitely clearly has, has some sort of reputation here. And that would probably explain why she was found guilty of second degree manslaughter and was sentenced to five years in prison compared to the, the lighter sentence we see earlier. Yeah. And, and I suppose in many case, many of the cases, alcohol is also yeah. involved. You know, men and women drinking together, the situation kind of gets out of control, degenerates into violence. Um, a bit like the story of Drunken Kitty from New York in 1885. <laughs> I think her moniker tells the tale. Yeah. Um, her real name was Catherine Duffy and, and she clearly had a reputation for problems with alcohol. Um, one evening she had taken her husband's wages. She went out drinking and then she came home and threw kerosene oil over him while he was asleep and set him on fire. Oh my God. It's just these horrific, brutal, violent stories. And and the policeman who came on the, the, the scene described how Patrick Duffy was dancing around the room. His clothes were on fire. And um, Catherine was standing in the middle of the room shrieking like a demon, the policeman says. Yeah, I mean, it's a terrible image. And and not surprisingly, she appeared to be suffering from the, the DTs. Um, she clearly had had long-standing problems with alcohol and another resident in the house said that she'd threatened to kill her husband before while she was drunk um, and although this time Patrick D- Duffy suffered burns he, he did survive. Yeah, and like many of our, our murdering bad Bridgets, they're, they're really varied. Um, this is just a, a small sample of, of the examples we have. Um, the cases are in so many ways atypical, um, but they do offer uh, a bit of an insight into the complexities of Irish women's lives abroad. Yeah, I mean, the thing with the records for murder cases is that they often have the most detailed sources because it was a murder charge. There's more paperwork. There are often maybe photographs or sketches of the of the victim and the accused in newspaper reports. And, and journalists clearly fed the public appetite for all the details by writing lots of quite detailed articles about these cases. 
Yeah, and, and across all the cases, the, the motives are so diverse, you know, ranging from jealousy, financial gain, getting out of a domestic abuse mm-hmm. situation as well, and, and others where women are clearly suffering mental ill health, um, and it's not caught on time, the support is lacking, or it's not understood or diagnosed. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the victims vary so much as well, um, besides the infanticide cases that we, we've mentioned in an earlier podcast about unmarried mothers. There are victims that include family members, neighbours, friends, associates, strangers. And we didn't even get to mention um, 24-year-old Tipperary-born woman in Boston um, who stabbed her sister when she when her sister criticised her taste in men. Oh, that'll have to be for the next series. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe. And if you would like to give us a five-star rating, it helps other people find us. This Bad Bridget podcast was funded by Queen's University Belfast and Ulster University. Written and presented by Leanne McCormick and Elaine Farrell. Edited and produced by Colm Heatley at Queen's University Belfast and consultation provided by Alan Hall. With special thanks to Siobhan McSweeney, Marty Maguire and Leanne Calvert. Original artwork by Ashley Neil PhD Cartoon. Original music by Francisca Schroeder and Katrina Gribben. And additional post-production provided by John Darcy.